Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joha Show podcast. Today on the pod with the Metro Vancouver Board voting to accelerate the move away from natural gas, Fortis BC pushes back. Plus, how long can our government ignore our declining living standards? And with his announced separation, what would Justin Trudeau's Tinder account look like? Our Friday rap panel weighs in with a special appearance. Plus, we look into parents using air tags to track their children who are too young for a smartphone. And we look at how you can manage your lawn with new watering restrictions coming this Friday. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Let's revisit our lead story from yesterday. Last Friday, the Metro Vancouver Board voted 84-50 in support of accelerating a faster move away from fossil fuels. Now, the original recommendations were advocated by the City of Richmond and endorsed by uh, Metro Vancouver uh, staff. Now, the vote includes asking the BC government to enact legislation to speed up the transition away from natural gas. Now, Fortis BC asked Metro Vancouver to reject some of those recommendations for a quicker move away from fossil fuels. The move was also not supported by various business associations who also rode in uh, to Metro Vancouver. Yesterday, Richmond Mayor Malcolm Brody was on this show and asked, uh, when we asked him why local governments should focus um, on uh, natural gas and climate change, and some would argue climate change policy should be left to senior levels of government. Take a listen. I think it's the responsibility of all the uh, parties uh, in government, whether you're at the local, provincial, or federal level, Uh, At the Metro Vancouver level, uh, we have the Climate 2050 Energy Roadmap, and really what we're advocating here is to follow that roadmap but do it at a quicker pace. That was Richmond Mayor uh, Malcolm Brody, and as I said, his community brought forward the motion uh, originally. Joining me now is Doug Slater, Vice President of Indigenous Relations and Regulatory Affairs at Fortis, BC. Mr. Slater, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jazz. It's a big story, uh, and uh, quite frankly, I don't think it's got received a lot of coverage, this vote uh, from Friday. Walk me through why Fortis, BC, is concerned uh, by what this vote represents broadly. Yeah, and to be clear, to start off, we're not seeking to slow climate action at all. What we are concerned about is that the motion that was brought to the Metro Vancouver board last week uh, will seek to limit uh, renewable natural gas and hydrogen, and we think that will slow climate action uh, decrease affordability for our customers and take important climate tools off our, off our belt. Um, we, you know, we think that these policies and those that come in the form of, of gas bans are frankly misguided. Mm-hmm. And, and look, when, when coal-fired power became a problem for electric grids, they didn't cut the wires to your home. Instead, they changed how they make the power. And, you know, that's really the same transition that the gas system's undergoing. Mm -hmm. We don't need to cut any gas lines. We simply need to change what's going through them. And that's exactly what we're doing at Fortis BC. You know, we've been investing for over a decade in renewable natural gas, energy efficiency measures, and low-carbon transportation, and and making quite a bit of progress. Last year, we announced uh, almost uh, 800,000 tons of avoided CO2 equivalent annually. It's about 238,000 gasoline cars off the road, so some pretty incredible progress. What is the difference between natural gas and renewable natural gas? Well, renewable natural gas is gas that's made from decaying organic matter. That could come from a number of different sources like food waste, wastewater treatment facilities, farm waste, or decaying organic matter that's trapped in landfills. And we collect that gas, um, and that gas is already part of the natural carbon cycle. That means that it doesn't add new carbon to the atmosphere when it's combusted. And when we inject 
that renewable natural gas into our system and use that instead of conventional natural gas or fossil fuels, we reduce emissions. And one of the best things about it is that renewable natural gas is a drop-in replacement. That means that it can be used in our existing system without changes in place of fossil fuels. And so it represents one of the quickest ways that we can help our customers take climate action and reduce emissions. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had Andrew Weaver on the show a couple of days ago. We were talking about July being the hottest month potentially uh, ever uh, since recorded time uh, in regards to weather. It's been very warm. We all know what the wildfires here in British Columbia, across Canada, around the world, and heat waves as well. Uh, Mr. Brody yesterday says, look... We have to, you know, really make an effort here, redouble our efforts in some cases to deal with climate change. And that means making bold steps. And that means, yes, eventually bringing in legislation, hopefully to wean society off fossil fuels. Um, what do you say to that argument that, look, we have to make big leaps here. We cannot do make, you know, do this in, in small steps. We have to make the big leap. And that is meaning getting rid of or certainly our use of natural gas. Well, look, we're, we're all concerned about the impacts of the changing climate. There's just no doubt about that. And that's why the work that we're doing to advance, you know, climate uh, solutions like renewable natural gas to displace, uh, you know, conventional nat- natural gas is so important. Um, but, you know, our customers, Jazz, they want transition, not disruption. And so we have to make smart choices about how we're decarbonizing and how we're setting our energy systems up for the future. And, you know, it's really important, like the, today the gas system plays an incredibly important role in helping us meet uh, peak winter demand. Um, you know, last year on December 22nd, when it was extremely cold all across BC, mm-hmm. the gas system provided about two thirds of the energy needs of BC's homes and businesses. So, it, you know, it clearly um, this is going to take some time. And, um, you know, I would just add that, you know, there's not an abundance of, of any type of energy to replace, uh, you know, natural gas today. It's going to take some time and we're going to need to do that with, you know, different forms of energy like renewable natural gas and electricity, for example. Now, when you, you you mentioned renewable natural gas compared to traditional natural gas, which generally burns 45% cleaner than coal, but it is still a fossil fuel. But now when you are delivering that renewable natural gas, which you did a good job describing there, is it mixed with natural ga- gas as well, uh, conventional natural gas for delivery? Yeah, sure. So when, when we put, when we blend renewable natural gas onto our system, it mixes with all the other gas that's on the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more renewable gas we blend onto our system, the less fossil fuel that we need to, our, or conventional gas that we bring on the system. And, and that, that mixing is, is really no different than how it happens on electric system. Uh, the wires that carry hydroelectric power in BC also carry power made from fossil fuels. And, you know, at low, low water periods like we're experiencing right, right now, we rely on supply from outside of BC, including uh, from fossil sources. So, but the, the important part is that utilities and energy producers are working pretty hard to change that across gas and electric systems and bringing on lower carbon uh, sources of energy. Mm-hmm. Now, now, many people have said, look, with Site C coming on, we need to continue to f- move towards cleaner uh, energy sources. Uh, but 
One would argue also that Site C, with use of electric vehicles and the demand for power and our population growing, uh, that that won't be enough. There's already been talk that we need a lot more uh, electric power. Uh, I mean, from what you're saying, and one would look at some of the basic facts, that walking away from natural gas isn't going to happen, you know, still decades away from when we can actually walk away from natural gas. Yeah, it's going to take some time. And, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that... um you know, we, we do need to take action and, and uh, you know, we have been answering the urgent need to, uh, to take climate action by bringing on uh, increasing amounts of renewable gas onto our system. You know, in the last, uh, you know, about four or five years, mm-hmm. uh, we've increased our supply from its sort of very beginning stages to where, where now we have 10% of our supply under, under um, uh, contract. To put that into perspective, that's about the same energy provided on an annual basis as uh, Site C. And so, you know, it can happen fairly quickly. But again, you know, these things will take some time and, uh, you know, we just need to keep working at it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mr. Slater, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. You betcha. Thanks for having me on, Jess. Welcome back to the show. Ahead of the upcoming busiest weekend of the year for BC Ferries, officials held a press conference to address public concerns. BC Ferries management acknowledged the system has had challenges in July, but the company maintains it's prepared to handle the expected 580,000 passengers and 210,000 vehicles over the upcoming BC Day long weekend. Joining me now to talk about BC Ferries is its CEO and President Nicholas Jimenez. Mr. Jimenez, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Nice to be here. Uh, let's start with the, the, the main issue here is uh, what guarantee can you provide uh, taxpayers that what happened in the past few weeks won't happen moving forward, especially with the BCD long weekend? Well, what's happened in the last week and also, yeah, you're right, with the July long weekend, mm-hmm. we were really acutely affected by not having the coastal celebration in service. That took out a lot of needed capacity in our system and I think customers felt that we were all very frustrated that represented you know 12,000 or so tr- passengers that we we couldn't service uh, and, and that was a challenge so that ship has been repaired uh, we had to replace the seals on all the repeller uh, the propeller blades on the uh, number two hub and that ship is going to be back in service. So that will give us the capacity we need, we desperately need to move. Like you said, 580,000 people are going to be sailing with us this mm-hmm. weekend. Now, one vessel goes down, in this case, the Coastal Celebration. The system is impacted in a significant manner. Uh, does that mean that you need more vessels or at least another vessels of significant size to deal with any mechanical challenges or other challenges that may arise? To, because one goes down, the whole system is impacted. It's true. Uh, well, if you think about it, I mean, we we have more capacity in, you know, periods that aren't our peak periods. So summer is obviously our peak. July and August, mm-hmm. we absolutely peak. Uh, the rest of the year, we don't have the same level of traffic and volume and where we do have more of that reserve capacity. So it's a little, it's the analogy of building your church for Easter Sunday. Um, so to your question, we do need to invest in vessels. There's no question. We've got a lot of our fleet which is very old or approaching end of life. Uh, We've got plans in place to uh, retire a lot of those vessels and uh, replace them with newer, uh, more efficient vessels. Um, Obviously that takes time. So we're, we're, you know, in the process right now of finalizing business cases and getting procurement processes ready to go. That doesn't help 
the traveling public in the summer of 2023, but it's certainly something that we have planned to do and will people will see over the coming years. I mean, I don't need to know specifics right now, but in regards to broad strokes here, how much, how many vessels or is there a dollar figure you could provide in regards to uh, upgrades or just, you know, new purchases that you see over the next four or five years? Yeah, sure. Well, it's actually, I'll, I'll probably put it over the next 10 years. It's not cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually have two different programs to replace different classes of vessels. So one is our island class. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that that could be in the hundreds of millions of dollars to replace and bring in, uh, you know, upwards of six vessels. The, the larger uh, re- uh, fleets are the retirement of what we call our C-class. So these are the queen ships. Mm-hmm. Um, those vessels could run in the hundreds of millions each. So that would be you know, close to a $2 billion investment we mean make. So this, this is not a small program. Uh, and I hope people kind of appreciate just, just A, how big it is, and B, how complex it is, mm-hmm. uh, but that we definitely have plans in place to, to make these investments. They're, they're needed. The system absolutely needs it. Um, you know, when I think of BC Ferries, I, I think of it as, uh, you know, whenever I've ever used it, either as growing up as a kid going on there or older, I always thought that it was a good job, good good steady job uh, with good benefits and people would love to work at BC Ferries. Uh, but you seem to have a, a challenge in regards to hiring employees, retaining employees to a certain degree. And look, a lot of that is uh, COVID related. But walk me through why... BC Ferries has challenges with uh, hiring or retaining employees at this particular point? No, I will, because it's a good question. You know, we're actually part of a global community of mariners. Mm -hmm. And if you were to talk to our colleagues in Washington State or Alaska or even elsewhere in in Canada on the East Coast, you will hear ferry operators uh, present the same scenario, which is they're struggling to find licensed mariners. Uh, it is a challenge globally. There's something like a deficit of 20,000 or more people uh, needed in this industry than is currently present, and this is globally. Uh, so we're we're feeling the effects of that here locally. So we have a lot to do, I think, in order to address that. And it's you know it's not just as simple as hiring people. Uh, it's one thing to hire them. It's another thing for them to be trained and certified into the roles that our regulators require us to have in order to sail ships. So these are people like our engineers and our, and our deckhands and, uh, and our officer crew, uh, people who need years and years of training and certification uh, in order to meet the requirements that are put on to us by, by federal and other regulators. So we, we have a lot of work to do. We've hired a lot more people in the last year, 1,200, the most we've ever hired in our 63-year history. Uh, but it's more than that. I think we have to present you know, uh, a way in which we can train people faster. I'm not sure if you know this, but it takes upwards of 15 plus years to actually become a captain. Uh, You know, today, I don't know that people want to wait 15 years in order to sort of make that kind of progress in their careers. I think people might be looking for a faster acceleration, but those are those are the constraints put on us, you know, by by the industry. So we have to think more creatively and differently Mm -hmm. uh, about how we approach Uh, not just the recruitment, but the training and the retention of people, for sure. So we've talked about recruitment and uh, retraining of people. We've talked about needing to invest uh, uh, in regards to um, the fleet itself uh, and the significant dollars that come from that. Um, But one of the other challenges you have is just the popularity of BC Ferries, but popularity of going to Metro Vancouver or beyond or the island. The island population has grown significantly, I think, in the last 20 years, probably 300,000 to a million people. The lower mainland is at 2.7 million 
million people. We're expecting another million here by 2050. Uh, this system itself started many decades ago. Can it grow at a meaningful level to stay up with the demand that's coming? Because it's not going to get any easier moving forward. Those peak demands at, at summertime are going to get even worse, and the demand's going to be even more significant to the point some would argue we'd need another, another ferry terminal one day. But can the system itself stay up with the growth that we are seeing in the, the southern, uh, in the lower mainland and, and on Vancouver Island? Well, you're asking the exact right question. Um, we've actually, I, I've just, as you know, joined this company as CEO, and we've just mm-hmm. launched a process with our boards and with government to, to answer that very question. So we need to understand what does this system need to look like in 20 years. And in order to build today for what we think is going to happen tomorrow, we have to answer those kinds of questions, which is, you know, how do we want people to travel? What does transit look like out to our terminals? Our terminals today, as you know, are not located in in places that are adjacent to urban communities. They're they're a bit of ways Mm -hmm. in, in some cases. Um, and, and getting to them typically requires a vehicle. And if more people are traveling uh, and there's more people living in this region, you know, how do we think differently? And so, so over the next 10 months, we're going to be working with our boards to kind of lay out a bit of a strategy and a vision for what we want the system to be in the next 10 to 20 years, and then to sort of fine tune our investment plan based on that. But I think, I think that is exactly the question we need to answer. Are we, Currently, we have the same number of uh, routes today that we did, you know, uh, many decades ago. Is that is that sustainable? Mm-hmm. Um, we have 30, uh, 37 odd uh, vessels today, you know, with certain capacity. Do we need do we need bigger ships, more ships? Um, all the questions that need to be addressed mm-hmm. uh, as we work through that strategy with government and, uh, and our board. Uh, I only just want to ask you that question. I there was an old cabinet minister, Pat McGeer, I think it was, and many years ago uh, from the 1980s, he used to have an old model when we actually did talk about putting a bridge over to the island, and uh, he <laughs> kept it when he left government. So every time there'd be some challenges with ferries, he'd pull out that model out of his basement. He kept it after he left politics. And uh, even here today, now we still have those conversations about a, a fixed link uh, over to uh, the mainland, although it would cost uh, probably $20 billion now or more. So uh, that's part of the conversation. But thank you so much today for your time, Mr. Jimenez. Look forward to having you on the show very soon. Yeah, I'm, uh, anytime, Jazz. Great to chat. Well, every Friday, we bring together our dynamic duo to help explain the week that was, but we thought today's news warranted a special appearance. It's time for a special Wednesday edition of the Friday Wrap. Goodbye now is over. That's all, thank you. All right, that's a wrap. It's Wednesday, and this is the wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's Wednesday. Today we discussed the separation of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Sophia Gregoire Trudeau, and we asked that Justin Trudeau become the world's most eligible bachelor. Joining us today is our regular rap panel, Leah Halai, who's a TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. Happy Wednesday. Thank you. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. What? I know. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, let's start with uh, today's announcement. Uh, Leah, uh, were you remotely expecting that at all? I mean, any inkling whatsoever? 
Well, I mean, I kind of had some idea. I didn't think it was going to come on a Wednesday. It's kind of like a maybe a slower news day or something. But I, I kind of thought that there was some cracks in that foundation. Because I remember Justin said in 2014, before he even became prime minister, that their marriage had ups and downs and they were dealing with some stuff. So I think there was definitely, you know, some issues. And to be prime minister, can you imagine what kind of marriage that would be like? That would be tough. It would be tough. Uh, Sarah, how about you? I mean, uh, how much do you think this has to do with just political life. I mean, political life is tough on an individual, but it can be tough on families and relationships as well. How much do you think this had to do with just being the prime minister? I'd like to say that Stephen, the producer, phoned me today and he said, hi, Sarah, it's Stephen. And I'm like, I need a little bit more information than that. Um, (laughs) Because I'm like, are you Cher? But that's another point altogether. And then he said, I'm phoning you because, you know, the rap and the Trudeaus. And I'm like, what, what do you mean, the Trudeaus? I had just come back for, in from dog walking. I did not have you a clue. You didn't know? did not have a clue. No, not, not a clue. Well, I mean, I don't really look at political figures and their marriages. Honestly, if anybody was going to break up, I thought after last night it would be Melania taking a hike, right? Over, like, yeah. you know. She's on. never so walking away, not, that one. No. Apparently, yeah, she's, there's too much cash on the line. He's going to put one, a jail. Yeah, I mean, it seems, it, it, it seems to be, I would think, politics and just being in political life. And and I have to say the toxicity of political life and just, mm-hmm. you know, social media and all that kind of stuff. Because after speaking to Steve and I online, and I, you know, I do follow both Trudeau's online, and, and you know, there was a lot of people, God bless them, saying, you know, you, I, you know I'm sorry, and I'm hoping everything is going to work out for your kids, and, you know, wishing yeah. you the best, and then there's, you know, the jackasses that come on and have nothing but crap to say, and, you know, and, and for that, I... That kind of is sickening. Whether you like yeah. a politician or you don't like a politician, this is their personal life and there's children involved. And there's, there's children involved. Yes. And that's exactly it. There's lots of politicians in Canada that I don't like that other people may and vice versa. But I would never go on those politicians' personal media and make such horrific statements and awful statements that family members can see. I mean, you know, this yeah. is it's a, it's a mental health issue. But I, I, I definitely would say I would like and I don't know either of them. I've met uh, uh Justin a couple of times, but I've never met his wife. And I mean, it's a lot of pressure being in the public eye and you're constantly under attack. And especially over the last five years when everything has been heightened crappiness. Yes. Um, you know what the thing is? They've just separated. Maybe, you know, with some we'll time and everything, together. maybe they'll get back yeah. together. There are lots of people that work through this stuff and maybe they just need to take a break. Whatever happens, I wish them the best. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One thing interesting um, is that, um, you know, generally uh, prime ministers are married uh, when they're in office. Yep. Um, yeah. And I think we've had two prime ministers who were bachelors, William Lyon Mackenzie King um, uh, and R.B. Bennett. Uh, and uh, Pierre Trudeau began his term as a bachelor, became the first Canadian prime yeah. minister to get married while in office. And he ended up as Canada's first divorced prime minister. Uh, he did uh, it all. He's a bachelor, <laughs> married, divorced. Bam! <laughs> and he dated Barbara Streisand. He dated Barbara Streisand. The guy was a legend in that situation. Right. Yeah, ex- I mean, come exactly. On. I mean, can, can it? Yeah. I mean, do you think it's? Um, and this is this is a different situation. But do you think, like, generally, we still prefer our prime ministers, uh, Leah, uh, uh, to be married, don't yeah. we? I mean, we don't we don't want a single person there. 
No, I think I think when you think of a prime minister or you think of, you know, the king or queen or whatever, you, you know, anybody that's in power like that, you want them to be in a relationship because I think they need to know what it's like to deal with a spouse. They need to know how to handle certain situations. So if they can have fights with their spouses, maybe they'll be a better prime minister or they'll be a better king or queen or whatever. But I think that knowing that they're in a couple just makes you feel more comforting because we kind of look up to them in a way like a parent almost you know what I mean that you're kind of like I would, taking I care would, of the country I would think that you know <laughs> I think that actually the funny thing is I think it's actually and it's it's horrible but because politics isn't what is what it is now and it is different yeah. from 30 40 years ago where social media like you could you could go home and there was no cell phones and there was no email so the end of the day was the end of the, the day, end of and, the politicians day. Yeah. and famous people alike mm-hmm. could actually go home and spend time with their family those days have gone and yeah. I mean, you know, for as much as people complain about politicians of all different stripes, and and you have been a politician, Jess, so you know, yeah. the pay <laughs> is the pay for the amount that is being asked of people is frankly crappy. And you yeah. know, yeah. and if you want to know why why a lot of great people that you may know personally or other, the, the 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 pressure that you're put under running for office and just the time that it demands based on and then the pay that you get for it. For a lot of people, mm. and and the scrutiny, like just people, treat, you know, going through your even just running to become stuff that is, you know, yeah, and the there's nothing and like nothing is sacred these days. There's nothing yeah. sacred. I, like I mean, I'm sure you guys probably remember what Jean Chrétien when he was prime minister. He had a son that was, was for all intents and purposes, had a lot of personal issues. He was an adopted child there, but and there was stuff going on. But the press was respectful. It was never a topic of conversation during elections, etc. And now you look at the states. I mean, everybody's kids are dry. It's it's. This is, it's, it's a whole different so ballgame. Yeah, it is ball awful. Yeah. I, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, I I remember I took a significant pay cut to go into public office, and you do it, but <laughs> you take slings and arrows. It's left, right, and center. It's, How did it's, your uh, family like it? Well, they, I, okay I, I never dragged them along to public events, but it, it's not no. easy. It's not easy uh, because you are attacked every single day, and it's unfortunate. But And I'm hoping, you know, I, I remain, remain hopeful that things will turn around. They have to because I'm not, just when I think we found bottom, we haven't seen. So we're going it, deeper. It, is, it remains Wait, a significant... Forget, forget bottom. Apparently, people are actually jumping into the, the, the deep end with a shovel to see if they can get lower. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Well, that's Donald Trump for you. All right. Well, let's have some fun after the break. The question for both of you will be, did Justin Trudeau become the world's most eligible bachelor? That's next. <laughs> Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Leah Halive and Sarah Daniels. are part of our Friday wrap panel, but uh, it's a special edition for this Wednesday after we heard of the separation from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his wife, Sophia Gregoire Trudeau. Uh, well, this is the question that I've always wanted to ask both of you guys right now when I heard about this story. <laughs> is is uh, is uh, is about uh, a Prime Minister who's going to be dating. Well, maybe it's a bit too early to talk about Tinder profiles here for a moment, but I've got to ask... You Wendy, think? Yes, yeah. think? <laughs> this is like the, time I mean, is money, the Sarah. Pay, the Come writing on. is not even the writing's not even dry on the separation papers. I mean, oh. this is so, so, first question to you, Leah, is when do you think it's uh, <laughs> uh, it would be appropriate for the prime minister or, or uh, so <laughs> Sophia when? Greg Trudeau to start dating? When, when do you think? Left? Like Friday, left or Monday? Right? Are you gonna wait a couple? He's probably already on Tinder. Let's be honest. <laughs> no, he's not. That's just he's I would. I do. Nobody right wants now. to know that. Okay, maybe Sunday. Sunday he'll start swiping. No, <laughs> no. 
I think, I think, okay, he should definitely wait a few months at least mm-hmm. uh, just for looks. You know what I mean? Like just because if he starts dating somebody that's like in a week, that's going to be awful. But I'm wondering, Jazz, if he's going to follow his dad because his dad was 51 when he married Justin's mom and she was 22. Is he going to go younger? Because he's 51 right no. now, oh. which would be awful. I, will, I hope I, not. That's against brand. Say, here's the thing I hope is, not. not. Not this day and age. That's against brand i don't think if he starts dating first of all if he starts dating i don't think we'll hear about it because i mean they managed to get a lawyer and a legal agreement and all that like that takes a lot of work and they got that all taken care of nobody was the wiser so they've got all that sorted out how again i, I hope without pictures you know what i mean I hope, people yeah, will be all i over. hope that they i do hope that they work it out but on the on the chance that they didn't and this just sort of occurred to me because it would be so ridiculous i've decided that he should date sofia vergara because oh, that yes. would be I was, hilarious i was gonna mention that that was one of mine me too back, she's divorcing yeah she she and her <laughs> husband same uh, age. yeah they're the same age yeah and oh. she's she's hilarious we on that i mean oh. I, I, she's hilarious but yeah. I, you know, still, again, I would like them to be able to work stuff out. Yeah. No, I mean, who can you date, though, right? You've got to date somebody. I mean, when you're, it would be very difficult to date anybody that had younger children. Um, you'd want them to have a successful career, but not necessarily in the same career that you're in, because that yeah. is just bringing the office home with you. Um, somebody that can handle the, the limelight to a certain extent. It's going to be and an actress. Pressure. I think he's going to date. An I, I doubt it I would be an actress because there's too much. There's too much stuff that can be dug up on them, right? So true. I think if but... he ever, I feel like if he's if he ever starts dating or like if it, if they actually do go through and divorce and they don't work things out, that it will be somebody from the private sector that we're not going to know a lot about. You think? And yeah. he'll probably be know. dating them for at least. He'll probably be dating them for at least a year to a year and a half before Listen, we Listen, Cher is single, too. Yeah, go yeah. Older. Well, you know, the, the <laughs> there thing, you go. remember, remember uh, I think uh, Sophia was uh, an entertainment reporter. He is a drama yep. teacher, so I can see him enter- uh, uh, right? dating someone from the entertainment industry. And the funny part is you brought up Sophia Vergara. I was thinking the same thing today. I wrote it down. It's on my paper. And Sophia if Vergara. those of you who don't know who she is, her latest or last role was probably playing Gloria in Modern Family. Take a listen. She's also no, a no woman is okay with with this we don't forget we wait and then when you least expect it we make you pay <laughs> just that accent alone. exactly she is she is absolutely hilarious i do i do um i do love watching that show but you know well, it, and yeah sorry go ahead we we did have, we did have a very glamorous first like a, a, you know a prime prime minister as well as like i mean first lady i don't know what we call her here in canada um, and and they yeah whatever we want to call her and they were they were quite glamorous so the thing is you know it's it's i'm sure like there's there was a meme going on that was on uh, the lincoln project's instagram today about and it was a picture taken and obviously out of context but i guess they're at some event Blania's holding donald trump's hand and she's leaning in to like do the double kiss <laughs> With Justin, oh, which was so, so the, the, the <laughs> caption for the Instagram post was Justin Trudeau separated today. Really bad news day for Donald. So, <laughs> exactly. You no, know, she ain't leaving Trump. She well, ain't it, leaving that money. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I was thinking about this earlier today, did, uh, today as well. There's actually a, um, a movie that was made of, um, now it wasn't a prime minister, but it was a president, a single president uh, that yes. starred Michael Douglas. So uh, uh, Stephen just dug it up. Take a listen. Oh. I don't know what happened. One minute I was calling him a mockery of an environmental leader. The next minute I had a date. She didn't say anything about me. 
Well, no, sir, but I can pass her a note before study hall. Would you like to dance? Yeah, I guess. I mean, yes, sir. I'd love to. Yeah, he's going to start dating next week, I like, think. Like, how do you date, though, as a prime minister? That's tough, you know? Well, that is thing. tough, right? What does he put as his job, right? Prime minister, you know, on Tinder. Like, what Absolutely. You, what do you do for your profile? <laughs> That's exactly what you put down. You got security. You get people driving you around. Totally. It's, you know, it's it's a, it's sellable, right? You'll be stopped 24-7. Yeah. Yeah, I could see him doing It's Just Lunch. You know that one where they people meet for lunch? I had a girlfriend that did that. She said it was a disaster, but nonetheless. Or maybe he'll do 90 Day Fiancé. How about that? He can find someone oh from another country. Oh, my God. No, no, no. <laughs> see, this is the problem. We're not used to having leaders who are single. We really no, aren't, right? exactly. It's weird. Well, it's just weird. And, and honestly, would anybody care if he was, like, in his mid-70s and, like, not particularly attractive? He's a good-looking guy, and he's in his early 50s, so... Yeah, it's a topic. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, walked exactly. into the stu- walked into the office today, and there was Karen Kunkun and uh, Jill Ben. <laughs> the first thing they're ta- that's all they were talking about. That's all they're talking I walked about. into the office, and I go, well, "There's a the topic of the day." So there you go. <laughs> totally. Oh my god! There you go, Leah, Sarah. Thank you. My hands up for share. Share. <laughs> see you on Friday. <laughs> see you on yeah. Friday. Share. I didn't think of that. That could actually work. Right. <laughs> share. That Jeez. would be. Can you imagine that the outfit at, like, any formal event? That would just be off oh, the charts. <laughs> sure. right. That is Leah, a live TV reporter and radio host, and, of course, Sarah Daniel. She's a real estate agent uh, in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster uh, as well. I want to thank both of them. They're part of, part of our Friday wrap panel, but uh, we called them today. Wanted to hear from them. Think about um, all the issues that we cover here uh, at CKNW, especially the last um, year or so. Uh, think uh, rising mortgage rates, think uh, inflation, think about the high cost of living in this city. It's been tough and it remains tough for a lot of families and individuals. Uh, most people, you know, that call this show, if we are talking about affordability, always talk about, it, you know, feeling it's very difficult to get ahead uh, in this province. Well, the economy is simply not generating the real income per person needed to sustain our standard of living. Uh, that was part of a uh, op-ed written by our next guest. David Williams is Vice President of Policy at the Business Council of British Columbia. And he's joining us to talk a little bit about Canada's declining living standards. David, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jazz. Thanks for having me. Uh, your overarching uh, sort of study and also your op-ed that you wrote, give, give me a sense of sort of what the numbers have are telling you. Yeah, well, the OECD wrote a report in uh, the latter part of, uh, of 2021, and, and we wrote a report on it in December of 2021, uh, looking at the uh, the next 10 years and then the 30 years after that, so 2020 to 2060, for growth in or projected growth in real GDP per person. Uh, and just for those listeners out there, GDP is just the total income or the total output or the total expenditure of all households and businesses in the economy for one year. It's, it's income. Uh, and we care about it on a per, per person basis because that's what we take to the grocery store and that's what we use to feed our families. And according to the OECD, Canada is going to be dead last uh, in the OECD of the 38 advanced countries for both this decade, 2020 to 2030, and the three decades after that. So really 40 years of stagnant growth uh, in uh, in real incomes per person in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't get to a place like this um, uh, in one day or a year. What, what's gotten us here? 
Yeah, well, the OECD hasn't done anything radical. They looked at what we had done uh, for growth in, in real GDP per person over uh, 20, 2008 to 2020, and we grew by about 0.8% per annum. Uh, and then uh, and then they've sort of said, well, we think you'll do about 0.7 over this decade and then 0.8 per annum over the decade after that. So 0.7, 0.8, these are not really radical forecasts. They're essentially saying you're going to keep doing what you've been doing. Uh, and, and the trick is, you know, we're on track for that right now. If you look at the, the federal budget or the provincial budget and you look at it in, in terms of its forecast for per capita GDP, uh, you know, real incomes per person are essentially flat out until 2027. No growth whatsoever uh, until 2027. Uh, and, you know, the other thing to point out is uh, we're also on track because, hey, Canada was one of only seven advanced countries in the world that hasn't recovered from the COVID, uh, from the COVID downturn. So per person incomes in Canada are still 1.2% lower than they were in 2019. It's actually the fifth weakest recovery uh, of any of the, the 38 advanced countries. Canada was, as I say, one of only seven countries that still hasn't recovered its per, in per person income terms. Mm-hmm. I think in your op-ed you were saying that um, Canada's annual GDP per capita would reach 55531 in 2027, still 1.2% below pre-pandemic levels, um, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. Um, how do we get out of this then? Is it... Is it, is it New policy that's required. Like, what do you? What kind of things do we need to be doing as a nation and even as a province to start moving forward again to make sure this isn't permanent? Well, I mean, step one is to acknowledge the problem. We've got a. We've been really focused on stimulating the economy with lots of, um, you know, what I call sugar pops policies, right? Like stimulus for, for consumer demand and try to prop up housing demand. Um, you know, and we've been focused on that for quite some time. We've been we've been borrowing very heavily. We're the fourth most indebted country in the world. We've got the third most indebted household sector. Most of its mortgages, obviously, that's pushed up the price of housing. Thirteenth uh, most indebted corporate sector. The eleventh most indebted government sector. The capital stock of, of equipment, tools, and, and technologies that workers have um, that's been shrinking since 2015. We've been retreating from international trade with exports falling as a share of GDP. Most other countries are more integrated into international trade. We've become more domestic orientated and more insular. Mm-hmm. So we have to start actually addressing these, uh, these issues. We do need some, a change in policy directions and we do need governments in Ottawa and Victoria to, uh, to not paper over these issues, but really start to get to grips with them and addressing these structural problems. If we do not do this, what's Canada look like to you or BC look like to you in 25 years? Well, the burden of this is really going to fall mostly on young people and aspirational people who actually do want to have a better standard of living. You know, if, if you've already made your money and you're doing well in the housing market, uh, thanks to the boom of the last 20 years, you're probably OK. But but it's everybody else who's trying to make a go of it, I think, in this economy. And, and having a rising tide that lifts all boats. Uh, provides that opportunity for aspirational people to get ahead and to, and to sort of you know to feed their families and, and to get ahead over time. And if we don't uh, address this issue, um, we will so simply go backwards in in relative living standards. Most other countries are going past us. Uh, or sorry, all other countries are going past us uh, in growth terms, and then obviously our standard of living will fall relative to other countries. Mm-hmm. That, that's exactly we're absolutely on track for that forecast. Or are other. Um, uh G7 countries in the same boat here? Uh, was it specific to Canada in your mind? 
Yeah, there's a there's a few. I mean, the UK hasn't been doing too well. Germany and France haven't been doing too well, but they do start a fair bit ahead of of Canada. I mean, you know, our productivity levels are you know 26% lower than you know the American workforce. They're about 22 to 23% less productive than than the uh, the French or the German workforce. So there's a few other advanced countries that are that are similar to us, but but not quite as as bad as us. And, and certainly, as I say, we've had the fifth weakest recovery from uh, from the pandemic recession uh, of any country. And in fact, in, in, in per capita GDP terms, we're already in recession. We're mm. still in recession, and and we're not likely to get out of it before 2027. Wow, that's uh, sobering, sobering information, David. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Jazz. Well, Apple AirTags, a small tracking device that can be attached to belongings, are increasingly being used by parents to track their children. The small device, priced at $39 Canadian, can be tracked anywhere in the world as long as it's within Bluetooth range of another iPhone device. Parents using uh, AirTags attract kids and still give them freedom. But is it a good thing? Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about using AirTags uh, is Susan Lin, a psychologist and author of Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Business, and the lives of children. Uh, Ms. Lynn, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Taz. I'm happy to be talking with you. Yeah, likewise. I find this to be a, an interesting topic, I guess partially because, uh, you know, I am a parent. First of all, is it a good thing to use air tags to, uh, to keep an eye on the kids, you know, uh, especially if, if you don't want to give them cell phones? Uh, let's say they're 12 years old or 11, you don't want to give them cell phones, but do you think it's right to use air tags? I think that parents really need to ask themselves why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because one thing that's happening is um, that we live in this like culture of fear, mm-hmm. and people are making a lot of money off of fear. Um, one of parents' biggest fears are um, is um, stranger kidnappings, mm-hmm. but really the percentage of kidnappings hasn't changed in the past several decades. Mm-hmm. It's the world, I mean, it's not more dangerous than it was 25, 30 years ago. And yet, I think parents are more frightened for their children. I think to a certain degree, even uh, kids getting dropped off at school, when you look at the lineup today compared to maybe when I was a kid, uh, you know, <laughs> you'd walk. And not that right. kids aren't walking to school, but there always seems to be a lot more parents dropping their kids off. Uh, unlike the past where a lot of us were walking to school. I'm curious if you are going to, de- if you decide to go ahead with air tags uh, and, and you decide why you're doing it, uh, you should, should you be sharing that concern or to sort of explain to your kids why you, why you believe they should be carrying air tags? I think that if you decide to track your kids that you need to let them know why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. But one thing that puzzles me, um, especially about, um, air tags for young children is that they're almost always with an adult. Hmm. I mean, young children, you know, they're not on their own very much. So I'm not sure what parents actually gain from doing it. And so do you think it's it's just, it's more so fear more than anything else? Because I was reading a Washington Post article recently where parents are using it. Everyone has different reasons, but it, it, there seems to be that underlying issue. I got to keep an eye on them, but I still believe, you know, they're too young to have cell phones. Um, I, well, I certainly think that young children shouldn't have cell phones. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, the reality is that for young children, most of them are spending time in the care of an adult. 
Mm-hmm. They're, they're just not off by themselves. So, you know, in a way, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And, you know, as for tracking older kids, I think, again, you need to ask yourself why you're doing it. Is it because you're afraid? Is it because you don't trust your children? Mm-hmm. And, and whatever the reason is, I think it's really important to talk to the kids about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, broadening out just for a moment here, um, in regards to uh, your book, Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Business, and Lives of Children. How do you protect kids today from the technology that's out there? It's pervasive. And you know, and like any parent, I have I have challenges as well with a with a child uh, who occasionally has to use a cell phone, but I prefer they not. I just feel there's an attention span issue. It's about right. being present, uh, all of those things. How do we manage a technology in our kids' lives? I think that um, one thing that we need to do is look at our own use of technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you know, if we're on our phones all the time then, you know, that we're modeling that for the kids. But the other is to make sure that you and your family have a lot of time offline. I mean, some families, you know, have make sure that that meals are all tech-free for both the adults and the children. Other families have a basket where everybody puts their phones when they come in, um, when they come into the house. Uh, parents, you know, have rules about not having devices in children's rooms at night. Mm-hmm. And and I just think it's really important to think about the things that your family likes to do that do not involve technology. Because really, the whole purpose of these devices is to hook us on them they're incredibly addictive. I mean, everybody I know, and I'll include myself, is, you know, addicted to our phones. I mean, you know, if we don't check them, we get anxious. And we need to give kids um, the opportunity to learn to love being in the real world. Mm-hmm. And do you, getting back to the Apple AirTags for a second, uh, is there an impact on kids when you when you think about their mental health, of too much control and monitoring, whether it's mom, mom and dad hovering around them, whether it's saying, look, we want you to carry this Apple AirTag, or even with cell phones, you're calling constantly. Is there an impact on mental health in regards to too much control and monitoring? Um, yes, I don't know. I mean, I have never seen studies on Apple AirTags and children's mental health, but I think that in general, um, it's it's important to allow kids as much autonomy as possible. I mean, not obviously not too much autonomy, and you have to take their age and where they are in their development um, into consideration. But it's important to help children feel competent in the world. Mm-hmm. Do you think parents are succeeding generally in regards to raising kids where you have a, you know, a, a, a life that they're enjoying while at the same time trying to protect them from the internet and social media and everything. Because I just think it's, it's, it's never been tougher to be a parent. And that's not, um, I, yes, you know, I it, agree with you. Yeah. I say that a lot, actually. I mean, you know, we're not dealing with the bubonic plague, but we do have COVID or we did have COVID or we're still having COVID. Mm-hmm. It's a really hard time 
to be a parent today because we have these, you know, billion-dollar companies working day and night to actually divide parents and children and, and to get kids to bond with their technology, to bond with their phones and to turn to their phones or, or their devices for stimulation and soothing. And one thing that I think people don't think about is that this begins in infancy. I mean, if, if you go to YouTube and you Google um, baby videos or videos for babies, there are tons of videos that are claiming to stop babies from crying or um, teach babies how to speak, even though what we know now is that babies can't learn language from machines. So basically what, what these companies want to do is to get kids early and, and, you know, in, in doing that, uh, what happens is that we're raising kids who don't know how to soothe or amuse themselves. That is dangerous. Free-range kids, I think, are very healthy. <laughs> yeah, no, that, yes. Very yeah. much so. Um, at the end, you know, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of pushback. We've seen a lot of school districts now. Um, you know, recently, we did a segment wanting to sue or getting together to sue uh, big tech, particularly around social media. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you see that trend growing? I think there's 200 school districts now. Um, many lawyers that we've talked to here on this show have said, look, there's going to be others, hundreds of more in, in the U.S. going after school districts because of the impact on mental health for kids. Uh, do, you, do you largely view that as a good thing? I think that um, there is growing concern about the impact of um, of tech and big business on children, and and I think that that's a very good thing. There's a lot more activism than I've ever seen. I've been doing this work for over 20 years, mm-hmm. and um, I'm just delighted to see communities, uh, you know, coming together around um, this issue. And there's um, there's a whole movement for phone-free schools, you know, to get schools to have during the school days that kids cannot have their phones. And I think that is a good thing. Yeah, we, we were talking about it. Europe seems to be leading the way on that, and I hope there's more schools moving uh-huh. forward because it just it, I think it makes a, a, a significant difference uh, in regards to just paying attention and just right. enjoying the moment in school as well. So I think it's I right. think. I, I think that's right. And and one of the things, though, that I do think is important, it's very easy to just blame parents. But I think that what you said is really important. It's never been harder to be a parent than it is today. And these companies, you know, have huge amounts of money. These devices are incredibly powerful and compelling. Um, it's not a level playing field. And, and one thing that really has to happen is that these companies need to be regulated about how they um, how they target children? Yeah, Miss Lynn, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. It's really great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.